Welcome to the podcast, Armchair Generals, back with another week of exciting news. Andrew, how you doing? What are you drinking today? I'm doing well for a Saturday afternoon. I'm drinking a Kolsch from Occidental Brewing Company up in Portland. Uh, logo, best east or west. So... Ooh. Yeah, you know, this is how I'm gonna I'm gonna rock my afternoon and talk some geopolitics with my man here. I like it. I made myself a mixed drink, a dark and stormy, a classic pirate beverage for a classic pirate day. A little bumbo rum, some uh, some simple syrup, a little bit of ginger. That's a nice refreshing afternoon beverage. So fun stuff. Let's, uh, should we get into it? Let's do it. So what is going on with Iran? You know, when the, when the government turns off the internet, it does make it harder to get an idea. Uh, the big thing for me though, is how these process, the protests have continued for, for days and have grown to the point where it seems like Eight provinces, roughly, there have been protests in 10 cities, at least. Really interesting stuff. And I I think you you mentioned, Garrett, that there was uh, a senior IRGC intelligence official killed in one of these recent protests. Yeah, in Zahdan City, um, protesters killed a senior provincial Iranian Revolutionary National Guard intelligence official uh, during these street protests. I guess they they beat him to death. Um, So, yeah, kind of crazy. It's one of these situations where, as Churchill would say, how do you go bankrupt slowly and then all at once? Is this the bankruptcy of the Iranian regime? Uh, The supreme leader has not been seen in several days, at least. Uh, And and they're not really talking about these street protests in the news. And in as much as they are, they're blaming uh, Kurdish separatist forces and the Americans, of course, the great Satan always behind everything. But it is not looking good. The this most serious protests uh, Iran has seen in uh, perhaps a decade. So it's serious stuff. Yeah, and I think the timing is bad for the regime in the sense that the Ayatollah is uh, he aging. Old. He's old. There's questions about his health. In any and there's no clear succession. Exactly. In any dictatorship, especially a kind of a theocratic dictatorship uh no one wants a very strong replacement while they're in the heart of their rule so there's going to be uncertainty but then you add to that this has just been the the venting not just of the of people who are against having to wear the headscarf and modesty rules but all the underlying frustration that's being pent up in society is coming out you see Mm -hmm. men out on the street women um all across the walks of life protesting things that they think the government are just failing and i saw some of the photos and images of blocking massive streets and kind of burning things and like that's not easily if you if the government allows this to continue for too long they're going to lose their legitimacy in the eyes of even the folks who still support them there have been unconfirmed reports that members of the Civil Protection Division of the uh, Revolutionary Guard that have been defecting, leaving their posts. These, of course, are un- unconfirmed reports. They have a civilian auxiliary that is responsible for social control and civil patrolling and all of that. And yeah, people are not showing up to meetings and, and in some cases joining the protests in the street, which again, unconfirmed reports. So we can't put too much stock in that. But if any of the regime's most hardcore supporters are deciding that the government no longer represents them or their interests or their beliefs or is no longer legitimate, it's a huge ground shift in in Iran. We know Iran. This, I mean, we should do a whole podcast on just the history of of the um, Iranian 
a regime, but Iran is not monolithic. It has a very young population. It has a largely Western-looking population. You know, there are lots of progressive forces in Iran. There were many progressive forces in Iran prior to the revolution. And so the idea that even after almost 40 years or 40 years of, um, you know, religious fascism or however you want to call the Iranian government, um, uh, the idea that after 40 years they're, they're, they're completely absorbed in this theocratic regime is not accurate. Absolutely. And I, I think that was clear with the, the kind of the green movement. Um, they won the yeah. popular vote, right? Like, that was 2009? That, Is that right? Around then. 2008? Sometime during that period, yeah. And they won the vote, but the government that would have moved into power was, I don't want to say antithetical to the theocratic regime, because I don't think they too, went that too far. Too reformist. Too reformist, too open to dialogue. Yeah. And I've read several books um, that we, we may put in the notes or something along those lines on Iran. And they have more than I think most countries, very fractured uh, kind of internal power groupings. And so I think there was a hardline element that in in many dialogues just tries to throw in a wrench in, in things even when the majority of the folks, the people in the country, want something else. And so we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, because this can't last forever. Like you can't have street protests. People aren't going to work. People, traffic is stopped. Services are stopped. The internet's being throttled. The largest provider of tele in the telecom industry there, I think basically stopped doing data over their 60 million cell phones. So this isn't something that you can maintain forever unless you want to be North Korea. Yeah. Another interesting but unconfirmed report was the FARS news agency, which is the news agency most closely associated with the Revolutionary Guard Corps, posted a statement on their website that expressed support for the protests and condemned the regime and claimed that the regime had arrested 23,000 people and that 423 people had died uh, in the protests, this is interesting because it was immediately taken down, but no claim that the website had been hacked was released. So it suggests that perhaps even internal forces, you know, inside the media, even the right, the most conservative elements of the media are siding with uh, protesters over the regime. So this is something we're going to keep our eye on. Uh, pretty closely in the coming days and weeks. As you say, the, these things can't last forever and the regime either engages in a brutal crackdown, which might happen. You know, these are still protests in urban areas. So the population that is most likely to be progressive and anti-regimeist. Um, so we'll keep our eye out, but they, they probably still have a majority of support among rural uh, non-cosmopolitan, non throughout the country so we'll, we'll continue to to watch as uh, the situation develops and one thing i would add to this this is in the backdrop of what now seems to be somewhat stalled nuclear negotiations with the u.s and during a time of economic uncertainty on a global level so if these protesters who i think i would agree are generally like urban elites in a sense very very modern if this kind of amalgamation of disagreements and resentments that are causing them to come out becomes uh, recognized and appealing to more kind of lower level demographic elements who are more focused on food to subsistence, if inflation goes up, the cost of bread goes up. You may see you may see that upswelling of support from the countryside, in essence, which are the bastions for the theocratic government's uh, kind of legitimacy. If we were able mm -hmm. to see that, 
I think the regime is in 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 peril. The question then becomes: Do you come out with something that's along with like a liberal democracy, or is it just a maintain you maintain the theocratic order with somebody else that isn't the current Ayatollah? So that's always the question, right? What comes next? Exactly. But speaking of what comes next for us, what's coming next on the podcast? Ukraine. Ukraine. Always in the news. Evergreen Ukraine. We we just couldn't make this stuff up. I I don't even know what to say. Like I sit around and I'll read an article or see something on the news, and I immediately think to myself, "We're going to talk about that this week." Because who would have thought? And there's a few things. Yeah, who would have thought? I want to start with before we touch on Lyman. And the the counter counteroffensive that's continuing from the Ukrainians or or even Nord Stream. Putin annexed four provinces, only one of which he controls nearly the entirety of, and there's uncertainty how long he'll be able to do, hold that. So, in my mind, it, it was like a farce. It reminded me of some type of bad comedy, where he's standing there announcing and signing these documents that these places are now russia at the exact same time his troops were fleeing the russian troops were fleeing from lyman and the surrounding area up 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 north uh of the donbass i you couldn't make this stuff up and from what i'm seeing and hearing like people aren't buying it anymore like there's there's a discussion beyond the people who are leaving with their feet who think this is just crazy that internally it's harder and harder for people who are even very pro regime to 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 buy what what Putin is is really pushing what are your what are your thoughts on that the annexation of let's see if i can name them speed round donetsk luhansk zaporizhia and oh Kharkiv, the Kharkiv Oblast. Are those all the four Oblasts? Those are the did four. I a, did I get them right? Kharkiv, they don't even control a majority of. So I was that was the one that I laughed the most. They don't control a majority of uh, Kharkiv Oblast or Zaporizhia Oblast or uh, the Donetsk Oblast, right? Donetsk, and, my, what I read, it was like somewhere around 55, 60. So it was close. It was yeah, it was close. It was the closest. Um, irregard- irregardless, not a word. Regardless, <laughs> annexation, I think, shows the weakness of the Putin regime. He has so few levers of power left to him that this is the fig leaf to attempt a forced negotiation where they can put a marker down and say we won't negotiate over these territories. They're Russia now, and we have to freeze a front line with Ukraine that incorporates most, if not all, of these territories in a new new Russia. I mean, it's no it's no mistake that these provinces are referred to as Nov Nova Russia, right? New Russia. Mm-hmm. Um so that's most probable. The idea, perhaps it also shores up some legitimacy regarding the use of uh, nuclear weapons, although doubtful that that wouldn't still be a red line for the global community. You know, there's an argument that by declaring them part of Russia, perhaps he gives the West, the collective West, the US, NATO, Europeans, a pause in supporting Ukraine. I I don't see that as realistic. I don't see it realistic that the Ukrainians won't see this for exactly what it is, an illegitimate land grab supported by forces of arms. I I think it's more what you started with. This is a sign of weakness. In his speech, his annex, I'm just going to call it the annexation speech, he specifically called out negotiations he said you know they should the west and ukraine i think he probably said it more like ukraine and their western puppets masters something along those lines should come to the negotiating table now and if you'll remember back five months 
It's the exact opposite. He was saying, we will negotiate when we're ready to, right? Times are changing, and it's not going in Putin's favor. I think I completely agree with your nuclear comment. There are some folks, uh, our, our, the Chechen leader. Friend of the pod, Ronzan <laughs> Kardoyev. Kardoyev, yeah. Saying we should use tactical nukes. And there's been a lot of discussion about this. That the fig leaf that you talked about of allowing these to be uh, Russian territory now allows Used them to in defense of the motherland. In exactly. A, in alignment with existing Russian Policy, yeah. nuclear doctrine. But I think... It would be a horrible idea. One, it wouldn't do anything on the battlefield. It it is a complete what? political tool. You're right. not and the because the number of low yield nuclear weapons you would need to deploy in the field to make a difference is a two is too many. It's not as if you can just detonate one mm-hmm. and win. You would need to target Ukrainian command and control, Ukrainian lines, ground lines of communication, and Ukrainian massed uh, units. So this is, you know, probably a dozen, maybe half a dozen nuclear warheads deployed. And then it raises the question of, is the Russian military, the Russian army currently in the ground, on the ground in Ukraine, currently capable of operating in an, on a nuclear battlefield? And the answer is almost certainly not. You know, the units that would be trained in this sort of uh, for this sort of operation have already been there for six months and are chewed up and the replacement forces and the irregular forces have no training on how to operate under those conditions. So it tactically, operationally terrible idea. I mean, you look at the equipment, they, the maintenance they had was so bad. They were having trucks, tires were falling off trucks, just using them. I'm sure as a, as a frontline soldier, you don't want to, test the overpressure kind of nuclear biological chemical warfare system of your armored vehicle in the russian army uh given what we've seen regarding their maintenance long term and the fact is they've lost something like six thousand armored vehicles they're not the cream of the crop isn't isn't available anymore they're pulling they're stuff wrong. out of stockpiles yeah so i wouldn't I, want to be riding in a vintage 1958 bmp <laughs> and then have a nuclear weapon detonated anywhere near me. Absolutely. And the idea that this is going to be acceptable from the international community in some sense is, I think, ludicrous. Just look at the recent vote at the UN Security Council where India or India and China on the on the general vote uh abstained. They didn't they didn't vote no, they didn't vote yes. Um they abstained, and then Russia vetoed the 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 the, the bill. But it <clears throat> it just tells you, like his friends without, as we talked about in the last couple episodes, his friends without uh, you know boundaries. Or, they certainly seem to have some. They have boundaries. They have lots of boundaries, and it makes no sense. Like China could shovel in a a bunch of weaponry if they really wanted to. But they don't want to because Russia is not their trading partner of choice. All country like basically the G7 is against Putin and Putin's idea that he's going to turn his population that is Eurocentric. Just look where the capital and their second largest, most important city of St. Petersburg are from or are located. These are European centric cities. They are full of European centric folks who wanted to be able to travel into Europe and vacation in southern Europe. These aren't folks who are like, hey, I want to go hang out with North Korea now. Uh, that's like going to be best for my child growing up. He He's barking up the wrong tree there. And to go uh, back to annexation, the idea that the these referenda have any legitimacy is absurd. It was at the barrel of a gun people were being asked to vote in areas that have been depopulated because they've been engaged in six months of open warfare. So there's no, the referenda conferred no legitimacy whatsoever and couldn't possibly. They're they're an open mockery of the democratic process. So what is the point? What is the point of even holding a referenda? 
it's totally for an internal audience. It's totally for the hardcore nationalist right inside of Russia, which is is not good that Putin and the Putin regime feel so backed into a corner that they've given up on trying to convince certainly any liberal elements in Russian society, they were never going to convince them, but any apolitical elements in Russian society, anybody who was just like, yeah, I guess, I don't, you know, you know the average Joe Russian, average Ivan, they're not even interested in trying to convince them that this is in their interest. They're now only playing to the furthest right elements of Russian society to keep them on side. And that's a dangerous position to be in because elements in that part of the Russian political culture are guys like Ramzan who are suggesting that nuclear weapons are deployed, which then I'm concerned, are we in a place where, where we're boiling the frog, where Russia is making these statements, is continuing to make these statements, will continue to make these statements into the future at more and more aggressive levels, more and more aggressively, to a point where um, we just assume he's going to use nuclear weapons, and he does, and it, and that genie is let out of the bottle. I, that would be my biggest concern. We've already surpassed Russian red lines in regards to the use of nuclear weapons that Putin had laid down earlier in the conflict. So we're in uncharted water here. Absolutely. And the reason why I think it's very evident this is for an internal audience is claiming this is Russian territory in some way to stop the West, the collective West, I'll say, from allowing Ukraine or providing intelligence to help the Ukrainians target assets, Russian assets in these areas, was a fallacy to begin with. The the Americans in particular, U.S. provided no uh, prohibitions on use of HIMARS or, or, or other systems in Crimea or in the Donbass. So this is the idea that all of a sudden they could, the Russians could claim this is Russian and that would cease uh, involvement. Maybe some folks would buy that, but not their number one arms player and intelligence provider, the U.S. So that's obviously not kind of a tactical or strategic battlefield decision. Secondly, politically, nobody was going to going to um, acknowledge this referent these referendum as as legitimate, no matter what, because it didn't. They no one did the first time. So when they did Crimea, when Crimea was seized and when parts of the Donbass were seized. No one except Syria, North Korea, a few others. So that leaves that leaves if it's not for an external audience and it's not for a strategic, it has to be internal. And the fact is, it obviously doesn't work for a lot of Russians because people are fleeing, fighting edge age men are fleeing across the border and giving interviews to Western European news about how this is, he, they're not going to go die for Putin's war, which makes no sense. They're going to go be a computer programmer for some European firm, and they're going to live their life. Right. And, yeah. China doesn't want this because they don't want someone claiming Taiwan. Exactly. <laughs> so the the precedent that is being that Putin is trying to set is that you can invade a sovereign neighbor, take what territory you want. And it's fate accompli. And that puts China in, a, in an untenable position diplomatically because their constant drumbeat is national sovereignty, national sovereignty, national sovereignty. You can't interfere in the internal deliberations, the internal politics of other countries. And so this is like blowing up their spot diplomatically. And put, how can they defend Putin? How can they support this when they're when they don't want Taiwan to declare independence? It, it, so yeah, China clearly very difficult position to defend this. You know, North Korea. They, you know, who cares? I, ultimately, who cares what North Korea thinks? They crazy anyway. <laughs> I mean, I I just and I said this in a previous episode. I. I can't imagine being a Russian in school and like a kid and the teacher 
following the party line saying, you know, we're being supported by our great allies of North Korea and Syria in our advancement on on Ukraine, you know, our liberation of Ukraine. And then some kid is going to be like, so can you tell me about these two countries? And they're like, well, North Korea is a hereditary dicta- communist dictatorship that has um, the lowest standard of living in all of Asia, basically, and is at war with the UN, like actually at war with the UN. <laughs> so yeah. that and then Syria, a, a government that doesn't even control all their country that went through a 10 year civil war. Yeah, it's really remarkable that we are not talking about the Russia that was allied with France against the Germans or, uh, you know, this is this is rough. This is rough stuff. That's that's a good segue, though, because. Russia, this this is like the dying gasps of Russia here. For some reason, they felt they had to go down this route. What? The part that I completely am shocked by is, yes, you want to take this, but it's for political reasons. It makes no economic sense. These are the poorest parts of Ukraine. These are these are parts of Ukraine that you will have to put more money into to rebuild them to Russian standards, let alone any higher standard. And- yeah, I th- but but it is the Ukrainian industrial heartland. So does. Russia weaken Ukraine by controlling these areas because it robs Ukraine of an industrial base. I don't think that's a particularly cogent argument, but it's a possible one, I suppose. I, I'm not going to disagree on that because you're right. These are, I want to say, these are areas that have high levels of natural resources, but it's in things that Russia has in abundance, coal. I mean, coal. Russia is a giant exporter of coal. They don't need more coal. Uh, it's it's very. Like, it's a very limited value to Russia, but it's of greater value to Ukraine. Absolutely, and it, it the when you pick a hill to die on, I'm shocked. It seems like Russia is picking this as the hill they're going to die on. You know, their first mobilization, Putin anyway. The first mobilization since World War Two. I don't know how – and look how that's going. They're, people are fleeing the country to a degree that is shocking. I mean the Baltics. The visible from space, the yeah. line of vehicles trying to get over the border into Georgia, visible from space. Finland has now closed its border to tourist visas. They, you know, they are no longer allowing Russians to travel in with tourist visas into the EU. Uh, it's, it is, it's wild. And that while he said partial mobilization, it's looking a lot more like general mobilization. And the word being used is, I'm not going to say the word in Russia because my Russian pronunciation is uh, not good, but it is a pun. And the translation into English of the pun is um, grave mobilization. <laughs> I I read that as well. Um it reminds me of that that fake video going around at the beginning of the war with the Ukrainian grandma trying to give sunflower seeds to all the Russian soldiers invading your town so that once the Ukrainians kill them, at least sunflowers, the national flower of the Ukraine, will grow upon their graves. Yeah. there. Do uh, you know that there's a group of... Um of people in Washington, D.C. that are that uh, routinely plant sunflower seeds in front of the Russian embassy. That's amazing. And then Russian embassy staff come out every day and cut them down. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, didn't we, I think the U.S. renamed the boulevard in front of them, like about after the lawyer who was killed. I forget what um, his name. Ma- uh, Magazinsky. Mag- yes. Magnet- Magnitsky. Yeah, I think so. I I could be wrong on that, but I know there's those political tit for tats that happen. Um, so what's going on uh, with the counteroffensive? How are we? How are how are the Ukrainian forces oh doing in the east? Tell me. Amazing. Like, this is the backdrop to the annexation. Lyman, or is uh, I think in the Russians they call it Krasny Lyman. Lyman is been was encircled 
and you know they trapped 5000 plus russian troops who off based off of the most recent news have fled or at least some of them fled and this was I've, I've heard this tactic is called kettling interesting they, I, the troops are surrounded and all and they're just uh, pounded and pounded and pounded until they leave um, they leave and they're given like one escape route yeah that is zeroed in on our with artillery but they let them they let them rush out like steam escaping a kettle. kettle and they've used this a few times now i mean they did an encirclement in the the initial kharkiv uh counteroffensive and so it seems like the russians are incapable whether that's based off a of doctrine or training or or intelligence sharing or just their ability to 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 enact any form of like movement uh they're very stationary and so while the weather has been holding up the ukrainians surrounded the town and it's important for our viewers is this is a railway line that goes straight down from russia it's a very important strategic and logistic hub for Russian forces operating in the Donbass. Uh, similar, a similar importance to Izium in terms of ground lines of communication, which I don't know, we've defined that on the podcast before, but ground lines of communication is a military term of art, which means uh, lines of communication that allow messages and logistics and soldiers to move from one location to another. So it links on via the ground as opposed to over the air. It links uh, positions in a battle space together. So these are... And obviously the Russians, unlike what we've seen most of the time, they, for a few days at least, stuck around to actually try and defend it instead of just fleeing, like we've seen... So obviously someone thought this was important. Yeah. Did you hear that the reason they stuck around was they couldn't evacuate prior to Putin's annexation speech because it would have been too embarrassing for the regime to surrender one um, of the last major logistics hubs in that part of Ukraine uh, before the annexation speech. So oh. a little later in the day was okay. Literally, but. they were like given the okay to pull out as soon as the speech was over and they they fled the, the city as soon, at the first possible opportunity. It's shocking to me, but I would not have expected this a few weeks ago. I think the Ukrainians are going to make significant headway over the next six weeks up north. I shockingly they're they're like in places very close to the russian border and the russians seem to be incapable of pushing um their power across but this is really emblematic of a morale problem i think it's still we're still seeing uh insufficiently supplied insufficiently motivated soldiers with it and soldiers with insufficient training they have no yeah, they um, they seem incapable of any kind of offensive operations. And I think this is what happens when an army is broken. They just huddle in defensive positions. Your officers can't provoke their soldiers to attack. They have no sense of initiative. And so they'll just they just want to live. They'll just hang out in their defensive position, which is fine. They've because they're not they don't want to go out and, and do anything to engage the enemy. And then the enemy comes to them and they'll put up token resistance in defense of their own lives, and then they'll flee at the earliest opportunity. And it seems like we've seen that play out many times over the last three weeks. And I'm sure there was a lot of psyops going on with the Ukrainians who speak Russian radioing on all frequencies they could find to these surrounded Russians about, you know, surrender. We, we've seen it just in the news the the push they were text messaging the ukrainians were texting in mass uh russian phones to to give to give them instructions on how to surrender properly i mean that's and and the russians seem to be incapable of of stopping this i mean they're still using satellite phones for yeah, communication it's, it's a real it's a real embarrassment you know in terms of morale sometimes you know throughout history folks will do things like burning the ships behind their troops to to uh, incentivize them to put their best effort forward, right? 
and there are there's an equivalent that just occurred that we're generally referring to as sabotage but i think it may it may be similar and we're obviously talking about the nord stream 1 and nord stream 2 uh breaches the the pipelines are until they're repaired which would be costly uh are are down there's no gas going to flow through nord stream 1 or 2 and i would point out nord stream nord stream 2 never had gas go through it since they they have not been operational they're full of gas to be maintain pressurization but they've now been blown up uh no proof that it was truly blown up but uh the acoustic signatures i've read uh sound like 250 pound uh explosives and you would need a nation state to go down 300 feet and directly plant these on the side of these pipelines, especially while they're under some level of surveillance from all the Baltic countries. But uh, to go back to my burning the fleet, I think this might be some type of power struggle where they say, oh, you're not going to. We're not going to ship gas. Well, we're going to make it so we can't even turn this back on. There's no way back. There's no. There's one way forward, and that's what we're going to do. What are your What are your thoughts? Yeah, German security sources have suggested that this was uh, sabotage and of such complexity that only a state actor could have uh, attempted it. So it seems that it was sabotaged by a hostile state no evidence directly linking russia ukraine this seems beyond ukraine's capabilities and what did what would nato have to gain through this sabotage so it seems unlikely it's them and russian surface vessels and submarines were sighted in the vicinity of the pipeline proximate to the detonation of explosives underneath the water that's what Sonar says happened is that it was uh, yeah you're right explosives. My read is similar. Uh, the Putin regime. I don't know if we touched on this in uh, the prior podcast last week, but there are a couple of different sources of power. There's a couple different um, power centers within the Kremlin. The military is one. The security services. The FSB is another. This reads to me as the military acting in a way that commits Russia to one military goal. It can't, there is now no political solution that will result in Russia regaining access to European markets. And it must commit to the East, to to winning in Ukraine. And maybe there were political elements in the Kremlin that were attempting a more diplomatic solution where the importance of Nord Stream was a piece of leverage being used to encourage reconciliation so that gas could flow to Europe again and they could access those markets. And now that can't happen. Or if it can happen, it's going to be long delayed because that pipeline will need to be repaired. And it's sort of a, a die is cast moment where now Europe is going to go its own way potentially even further than it would have otherwise because it's it now can't get any gas, right, via Nord Stream. Um, and the other gas pipeline from Russia runs through Ukraine, right? It does. And, you is know, there I one th- through Turkey as well? I think there's now one that – or at least they're under construction. And I think it's there's one from Ad- – Azerbaijan and some of the you know Soviet republics former Soviet republics that um I'm sure are going to be built out significantly just to increase flow and then there's a pipeline coming down from uh I think it's Finland or Norway Norway I think has a pipeline going that actually crosses very close to where this these explosions occurred and so I wonder if some of this is also trying to send a message yes we can we can cut off your gas um even more we can go beyond not selling it to you we can go to destroying the infrastructure that allows you to make to get it but 
I think I think people are going to look back and this is kind of shooting someone in the foot, the Russians in the foot. I having that hypothetical was leverage, and for the weaker states, like I wouldn't have blown it up now. I would have waited to the depth of winter when they really need it, and then blow it up. Because if you run out of leverage completely, if you if the Europeans get through this winter, if they get through this winter. They have a whole nother year to figure out their natural gas supplies for the next winter. This is that period of time of maximum leverage. And so that's the only reason why I wonder if it was someone else. But all things seem to indicate that it was the Russians. Their their vessels were in the area. They have the resources and the know-how to do it. Uh it's an interest it's just interesting. I mean, these are to put this in perspective, I think Nord Stream 1 has if I remember correctly has 100,000 20 plus ton concrete encased steel segments that are all laid down on the on the seafloor and are pressurized, welded shut and monitored. And so there's so much gas in there that, as we've seen in the news, it's pumping out for days. In one case, one of the holes is producing a gas bubble on the surface that's about a kilometer wide. And at some point, the pressure will drop, and they're going to fill with salt water. And I, I don't know if this means they have to be cleaned out or you can just patch the hole and continue to pump gas, but these are down for the foreseeable future. And Nord Stream One had already been shut shuttered. No, I believe I thought that the Russians had already stopped shipping gas, uh, claiming that the pipelines were down for maintenance, uh, which couldn't be completed due to Western sanctions anyway. They were so this this just further damage damages the pipelines, rendering them even more difficult to bring back online in at some future date so and that's that's the only reason why i wonder for the russians like their leverage point they can't like if it gets really bad they can't turn on the gas in a day or two this is months of repair probably you know if if they can get to these waters i mean that that area is now with the ascensions of the most recent countries these are these it's a nato lake uh i mean i don't know what else to call it so Will no, I think you're right. I think it is really in an, a another baffling decision in a series of baffling decisions in the prosecution of this conflict on the for the Russians. There's no evidence that it wasn't the Russians. Nothing compelling that it wasn't the Russians who did it. So the question becomes why, and I I think it's one of those internal politics offers the best answer as as it did in the case of uh, Daria Dubina's assassination um which again like why internal politics somebody in Russia probably didn't want them talking so what do, what do you think's going to happen next in the Ukraine if what's our prediction for the next week or two crystal ball Looking into our crystal ball. I'm shaking the eight ball. What's coming out here? Shake that eight ball. What do we got? What do we got? My prediction in the short term is continued Ukrainian victories in northeast Ukraine and a continued static line around Kherson. It seems like that there's continued heavy fighting. Um, so I, I'm, that's what I'm saying. We're going to, the Ukrainians are going to push the Russians probably all the way back to the, uh, border of the Donetsk Oblast in the next couple of weeks, I imagine. And, and, but we'll remain static around Kherson. How about it? I tend to agree. I'm, I'm a little more bullish on Ukraine up North, given the tactical, surprise i I was really impressed with that initial offensive counteroffensive but what they're doing now is the russians have had like 
to almost 20 days to reinforce and they're still getting beat. And so I think the Ukrainians are going to gobble up as much territory up there because they have the troops to defend. And they're going to pick, I would assume they're going to pick some uh, geological features where they've decided this is where we're going to defend for the winter. So they're going to pick a line, whether that's a river or mountains. I don't think there are much in the way of mountains up there, but river, valleys, some type of elevated ground with with the resources they'll need to basically encamp. And they're going to find that, get to it. And I don't think the Russians have it, can do anything up there for the time being. In kind of the middle of that front, in the Donetsk and Luhansk area, I think it's going to be much more limited. They, I don't. I haven't seen anything that they have significant troops there, and they're probably just playing a delaying game because the in a way you almost tempt the Russians to go west from those middle around Bak Bakhmut. I I don't know how to pronounce it because they'll put the they'll if the, stretch their line they open themselves up for counterattack from the north. And I think that's been interesting. This is like rolling up the Russians from both sides. And I think it was really wise. Um, even though I was shocked that they would be willing to go so close to the Russian border, it doesn't seem to affect them. The Russians don't seem to have the ability to project force across this area. And so that that I think there's going to be movement. I hope... And I'm sure the Ukrainians are still on this schedule to a degree to slowly crush and then encircle or force under fire the Russian, the 20,000 plus Russians, who's really the cream of the Russian military at this point. The who's left, that's the cream of the Russian military, force them to try and cross the Dnipro River uh, while being attacked or or just force them to surrender i think if they hold on west of the dnieper it's not going to be good for them in the winter because um the ukrainians can reinforce and it's just going to be an artillery battle and the russians are going to be out at the tip of their logistical lines while the ukrainians will be much more able to reinforce themselves and just wear them down. There will be no cycling of troops for you know R and R. So I I think the the Ukrainians are in a good position going into the winter if they can kind of find places to um, rest and recuperate. And I assume down south they there's they have to take Kherson. Um, politically, that pressure valve has been released because they have done so well up north, but. Internally, I think taking Kherson would be a huge strategic blow because that was the the one city that really gave up at the beginning of the war. There wasn't much fighting. And if they take it back, what have the Russians really gained? Uh, they haven't gained any major political capital from population centers. So it'll be interesting. I agree. And now moving on to everyone's favorite subject, one ping only. One ping only. Bong. $8 with a single ping. Give me a ping, Vasily. One ping only. A roundup of the week's stories in brief. Hurricane Ian makes landfall in Florida and then makes second landfall in South Carolina, causing unprecedented damage to Florida's Gulf Coast. So. If you're in Florida and and crushed Cuba, crushed Cuba, uh, a, a very quiet Atlantic hurricane season has seemingly woken up in the last month of the season. Uh, climate change, probably. I don't know. It's my guess. Uh, coup rumors in China. This one I thought was really over the top. Um, I only noticed this when people governmental officials in China started denying a coup, which normally is a bad sign. But then you looked at it and you think, okay, this is just some internet rumor. G's on vacation or something. And they had to say that, yeah, no, he's still in, still in power. 
So that's all. That's all I have to say on that one. Military coup in Burkina Faso. This this is good. So the colonel who originally committed the military coup has been overthrown by the captain, who has overthrown the colonel in the second uh, military uh takeover in recent memory my question is who next, Who's next? are, the are we gonna get down to the lieutenant maybe lieutenant the JJ. <laughs> maybe a sergeant they're just working their way down i think you know at some point it should be a non-commissioned officer they'll probably, they do, probably a better job. Would do a better job they work for a living rejection of a new constitution in chile this is interesting the chileans are still operating under the Pinochet uh, constitution. And uh, they they rejected a newly drafted constitution by the country's leftist political party, uh, seemingly because it promised contradictory things. Interesting. Yeah, we talked about this a bit before the, the, the episode started, but the idea that you could guarantee housing and, and levels of, of medical, that the country does not have it puts you in a situation of being the government, local, federal, being in contravention to the Constitution from day one. All the time. All the time. And if rule, if you make rules you can't enforce, people will stop ma- following any rules. And you're putting the local judiciary in the situation of having to throw out the actual laws to try and make something that makes sense a la venezuela but i know you have some interesting thoughts on this uh yeah that's venezuela is a great example of what happens when you draft a constitution that becomes unenforceable is no one tries to enforce it so judiciary the judiciary and and politicians make up their own rules on the fly and ultimately the country collapses into a uh, dictatorship run by a bus driver nicolas maduro i i would just say though that it is enlightening to me that a country said no to the to the constitution we're like we would rather have the constitution of the person who the military dictator who just randomly killed people versus your generally elected government governmental constitution very telling very very telling and uh, lastly Lula da Silva, Brazil's own, uh, will likely return to power in that country in upcoming general elections. Uh, A fascinating story. He was wrapped up in that uh, car wash corruption scandal a few years ago, left office in disgrace. Uh, And now, in keeping with South America's fascinating political developments we can't really talk about that anymore sadly sadly (laughs) sadly we well we we haven't returned any corrupt politicians to power yet so we'll see what we'll see what develops in brazil and here at home always so uh that's all i have andrew anything else any final thoughts no i think this is this hits the world for the week and we'll be back next week all right well join us again next week where we will talk about the latest developments in geopolitics, world affairs, current events, and whatever happens to be in our liquor cabinet. For Andrew and Garrett, thanks for listening.